Micah. If you have a Bible, please open it to Micah chapter 7. There is this thing that consistently happens in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. You know, a prophet is kind of a a unique category of service to God. They're divinely called, they're given a divine message, and it basically consumes the rest of their life. And what's interesting as you read through the prophets is how the um, role of prophet transforms the prophet. And so one of my favorite places to observe this is in the book of Jeremiah. In the opening pages of Jeremiah, God calls Jeremiah and he says, I'm calling you to a stubborn people who will not hear you. Don't worry, I will make you a wall against them, but it's going to be hard and no one will listen. And Jeremiah basically says, I don't think I'm that interested. And God says, interest aside, this is your job. And so he's, he's reluctant at first Um, But this thing happens in the book of Jeremiah where it gets hard to tell where Jeremiah is speaking and where you encounter Jeremiah's heart and where God is speaking and where you encounter God's heart. And over the course of the um, life sentence that Jeremiah serves as prophet, he begins to develop the same heart that God has for the people of Israel. And so we don't know him as the reluctant prophet. We know him as the weeping prophet, okay? Um, In the same way, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, this tiny little book where a prophet comes before God in prayer and says, God, I don't understand why you allow all this evil to continue. When will you bring justice? And God says, I'm going to give you an answer, but you're not going to like it. You're not even going to believe it. And he does so, and Habakkuk goes, I don't believe you. There's no way, there's no way that you would solve things in this way. And he wrestles with this. He struggles with understanding what God is doing and injustice in the world and these types of things. But by the time you get to the end of the book, we have just one of the greatest proclamations of faith in all the Old Testament, where basically Habakkuk says, whatever comes, even if the harvest is empty and the armies come and wipe everything out, even if the city is demolished, yet I will trust in you, O Lord, right? In the same way, here in the book of Micah, at his conclusion, what we have here are not Micah's words to Israel, but instead his worship of the God who commissioned him. But it's important to remember that where we pick up here in verse 8 continues what started in chapter 7. And we've paused there for an important transition. The first Seven verses are a lament, as we saw last week. It's him in prayer, grieving along with his people for, um, for where things are at. And here, there's a pivot, there's a transition. He moves, like I said, into worship. He moves into hope. And so, let's read this passage, starting in verse 8 through the end of the book, and look today 
um, as we kind of draw this conclusion of our series on Micah in regard to justice. Verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. A day for building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day it will come to you from Assyria and cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, maybe more than any place in our study in Micah, we see your character on display. We see your glory magnified by Micah, and he invites us into the same worship. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the God of justice this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to comprehend your beauty, your glory, your faithfulness, your love, and your forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the book, I've tried to emphasize the book of Micah as a piece of literature, meaning not uh, not that it isn't the word of God, because it clearly is. In fact, that's the whole idea behind a prophet is someone who speaks for God, but that here it's composed and organized and structured, and that structure helps us to understand the message. And so one of the big things that we saw is that the book of Micah works in recursive cycles, and those cycles have a very simple pattern of sin and judgment and hope. And so we saw in the first chapter as he lays out everything and then there's just a small glimpse of hope at the end of chapter one. And then we saw in chapter two as he begins again and deals with judgment uh, in chapter three as well. And then in chapter four and five, he focuses on hope. 
And then chapter 6, he turns again to judgment. And so here, again, we come to the hope aspect. And it ends on a very high note with the fulfillment of all God's promises, with the people of God gathered back in Jerusalem, protected from their enemies. Uh, It reminds me of the new covenant of Jeremiah when he says, and in those days I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? If we were to look at the closing verses of here, what Micah foresees and what he rejoices in is that everything is as it should be. Okay. So that's one piece of structure. But there's a second we need to keep in mind here, which is, as I said, that this is part of the larger section we've been looking in in chapter 7, which, we, which begins with a lament. And as we talked about last week, that lament is where Micah, in solidarity with his people, stands not as judge, thus says the Lord because of your sins, but stands as condemned and says, woe is me because of where we are, right? He enters into, in solidarity, the pain and suffering and sins of his people, And he weeps over them. And we saw that that's important. What I would suggest to you happens here in verse 8. Is in that same solidarity, he begins to worship the reality of God. But not just as an individual. But as an invitation for the same people he joined in lament to join him in worship. Okay, And so it is personal. And the subject that speaks over here is singular. But the hope is corporate. It's for everybody. Okay? And, um, and so what we have here, effectively, I think would be best described as a hymn or as a psalm. What we have here is a poetic proclamation of the goodness of God. There are words here that we can repeat for ourselves, that we can meditate on, but the focus here for the first time in the book is not really on what has happened, the sins of Israel, or what is going to happen, the judgment of God, or even in a sense, what God will do in the long term in terms of hope. Here, the primary focus is the God behind all those things. The God who was sinned against. The God who has functioned as judge. The God who will operate as savior. That's why it it finishes with that question, who is like you, O Lord? And Micah's doing something that's easy to miss there. Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? And so he draws on his own name here. He discovers, if you will, the meaning of his own name in the reality of what he's experienced as a prophet. Last uh, structural piece that I want to lay out before we talk. That's not the only question in this passage. I want you to notice one other one in the tail end of verse 10 there. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Now that's a very different question, right? Where is the Lord your God? And near the end, who is like the Lord our God? One is a question of criticism. It says, you say that your God is all these things, but where is he now? Right? One is the accusation of an outsider. but The other is the worship of somebody who God has come through. The tension between those two questions is the tension in this passage and understanding the first one leads to the marvel of the second one. Okay. 
This passage is all about tension. I'll show you what I mean. Okay, notice, uh, notice verse 8 again. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Like many of the Psalms, here it sounds as if Micah is saying, you may be against me, but God is for me, so you have no chance. Okay. Generally, we see many times in the Psalms where David or the psalmist or others explain their innocence. And they say, I am falsely accused. I am wrongly attacked. God, come to my aid. In other words, the call is a call for justice. And when we read verse 8, it looks the same. It looks like he's saying, you may think you have me surrounded, but wait, God will intervene. You may think, Egyptians in your chariots, that you have our backs against the Red Sea, but God will open the Red Sea. Right? That's how verse 8 sounds. But notice the important transition in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Micah doesn't come here in innocence, demanding justice. Instead, he comes in confession. Again, collectively for all of Israel and says, our enemies are here because of our sins. Our judgment is not at the hands of the Babylonians, but God who is bringing about consequence. And so then we go, wait, how is it that he can rejoice in the midst of his enemies? How is it that he has hope that it won't be taken care of? But notice what he says in verse 9. He says, because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, not on me. So here he sees himself as coming before the court and saying, I am guilty. And then he sees God as operating judging, as judge and de deciding for him and giving him vindication. Do you feel... The move back and forth here, do you feel how these things are interwoven? Here are the questions, and they're appropriate and important questions for us. Okay? Here's the ones on the human side. How can we rightly experience the reality of both being sinners who have fallen short of God's will and deserve those consequences both in this life and the life to come, and at the same time, how can we rejoice in that same God? It is easy, and we've seen it in Micah, it is easy to rejoice when God brings justice on our behalf. But here it's a little bit more complicated. Let me remind you of the broad contours of the message of Micah. Israel, you have sinned, and not just in the little things, but your entire community and society has become corrupt. It no longer serves its purpose in representing God and his goodness. Instead, it has been, become a cannibalistic, powerful, eat the weak, oppressive, uh, relationships have torn apart, idolatrous worship in the temple society, right? Therefore, God is going to remove you from Jerusalem, destroy the temple that you rejoice in, place you in Babylon. Okay. But God will faithfully and graciously 
preserve you in Babylon, bring you back to Israel, and as he does so, he's also going to change you into a new people. And as he does so, not only will there be forgiveness, but there really will be righteousness. Micah envisions a new Jerusalem that will live up to its name, no longer being a city of violence, but as Jerusalem means, a city of peace. And in that place, he also sees victory over the enemies of Israel because did the Babylonians attack Israel because they were such a wicked people? No. In fact, if you were looking for most wicked people on earth, the Babylonians might have taken the gold in that, okay? That's Habakkuk's problem that I mentioned earlier. He says, Babylon, you're going to use Babylon to judge your people? We're bad, but we're not Babylon, right? Why are they there? Because they're conquerors, because they're oppressors, because their goal is to take over the whole world and put their feet on the necks of all people. That brings us to the tension of this story. This is where the question, where is your God, becomes important. Because we see how Micah views history. But how do the Babylonians view it? Here is Israel. They don't worship our God. They don't worship the gods of the Babylonians. They say their God is the creator of all the world and is more powerful But look at how we routed them. Where was their God when we stormed their gates? Where was their God when we defeated their soldiers? Where was their God when we plundered their temple? Right? That's the voice here that says, where is your God? It's the voice of the conqueror that has destroyed and exiled in captivity the people of this so-called God. Okay. So there's tensions here. There's the tension of a sinful people that God desires both to be just and to save. There's the tension of an enemy that God uses both to discipline his people, but will also not let them get away with it. And then, most importantly, there's the tension of God's faithfulness. And that's the most significant one in this passage. When God's people are sinners, and when the enemies are powerful but deny his name. Where is God's faithfulness? How does God fulfill his will in the midst of these things? These are the questions that are asked in this. And yet, even though Micah writes to a people whose lives are in rubble and who are asking themselves in their own way, God, where are you? Why did you allow this to happen? He still sees a future and a hope. Look at verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, your boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Okay, notice the difference here between the times of Micah and the time he envisions here. This day and that day. This day, they're surrounded by the enemies who are breaking through the walls, and there's nothing they can do because God is in this, and he will discipline his people. That day will be a time for growth and protection and abundance. This day is a day where they're coming all the way from Babylon to destroy you, but is that what we see in verse 12? In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Is that an attack? Is that hostility? 
I would suggest not because look at verse 13, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. These are not soldiers coming to attack. These are refugees coming for salvation. They're fleeing the destruction of the world at large and looking for safety and security in the people of Israel. And remember that before Babylon had attacked Israel, Assyria had, and they're named here. And Micah's not alone in this. Isaiah says, one day they will build a road from Assyria to Egypt, straight through Jerusalem to connect together these great powers because they will all want to go to Jerusalem. Isaiah says, come, the nations will say, come, let us go to Jerusalem and learn of their God. What is that? That's another tension. How does the people who say, where is your God? because they have conquered and destroyed and demolished the temple, come to a place where they say, where's your God? Right? We want to learn of him. We want to know of him. We want to worship him. Look at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when we came out of the land of Egypt. And he says, I will show them marvelous things. What is this? It's back to the honeymoon of Israel, right? If I can use a metaphor that the prophets love, it's appropriate to see the people of Israel as an unfaithful bride. They have not kept the covenant. They have committed adultery with other gods. But here he says, I'm going to bring you back I'm going to restore the relationship and I'm going to do it doing the same things I did the first time. A renewal of vows. A second honeymoon. Right? Do you get that idea here? A new exodus. I will again shepherd you. Okay. And then look at verse 16. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. Okay. When God does this, it will be irresistible by the enemies of Israel. They will not be able to impede or interfere. In other words, they will come to learn by the preservation of Israel and the salvation of Israel that earlier God was in control. And now God is in control. Here he operated as judge, and so we can take no credit for our power. Here he operates as savior, so our power will do us nothing. In other words, he's even going to use the exile itself to demonstrate the reality of his power. I will let you take my people. I will even use you as the rod of my discipline. That's the language of Isaiah again. Babylon, I will use you to discipline my people, but then I will end Babylon and my people will still remain. Okay. There's so much going on here. There's so many pieces, but again, it hangs between these two questions. Where is your God? And who is a God like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? The question here is the same question that Paul poses in the book of Romans, in the opening chapters. How is it that God can be a righteous judge and also a gracious savior? To use the language of chapter 3, how is it that God can both be just and the justifier of the ungodly? 
How can those coexist? The missing component and the one that Micah here brings us to focus on, which is the central, unique component of a Christian view of justice is the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness makes God's faithfulness triumph. Without it, we can't make sense of things. Without it, we can't resolve the tensions of this passage. But instead, what we see here is a God who is both just and justifies the ungodly. Isn't it incredible that after seven chapters of identifying what does not connect with God's character and what does, isn't it amazing that in all the places that Micah communicates to us God's character and how it should be reflected in our lives? Never once at this point has forgiveness been mentioned by name, but when he gets to the conclusion, it's all he can talk about. Look at how strong the language is in verse 18. Who is a God like you? And what is it that makes God unique? What is it that sets him apart? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. Here's the incredible thing. As we've been reading, we thought the book of Micah was about Israel's unfaithfulness. But it's actually about God's faithfulness. We thought that the book of Micah was about God's judgment but it's actually about God's forgiveness. Because what Micah comes to learn as he carries these words, as he conveys them to the people, as he considers the big reality and all those tensions, is that surprise, surprise, God's fulfillment of his faithfulness was never based on Israel's behavior, but on his character. Look at the language here. Does he say again, we will again do the right thing? We will make promises and set things right. We will make restitution and then all will be okay. Where are the actions of Israel present in these closing verses? They're not mentioned at all. The only place that we find them, the only thing that they've done, is that they've done the iniquity that needs to be pardoned. Is that they've sinned in the way that needs to be forgiven. But who's going to set things right? Who's going to preserve and protect them? Who's going to provide a savior to pay for their sins? Who's going to protect them ultimately and totally from their enemies? Who's going to throw their sins into the depths of the sea? Now think about that for a second because there's a good picture. From the beginning of the Bible, what does mankind do with their sin? They hide it. Adam and Eve... They know that they've messed up, so they hide. They cover their bodies, and they hide in the bushes from the living God. But it doesn't work. And yet here, God casts the sins into the depths of the sea. He hides them. He buries them. He puts them away. He deals with them totally, completely, utterly. He removes them. What we see here is God doing something that we cannot do. And that's incredible enough. 
God's forgiveness through salvation, God's provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ was something we could not do. But more than that, it's something that mystifyingly doesn't seem like something God would do. Here's how Paul puts it again in the, Roman, uh, in, the, in the book of Romans. He says, God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. Remember that when we proclaim the message, Jesus died for your sins, we proclaim a message of forgiveness, yes, but we proclaim it to a rebellious people. We claim, proclaim it to the same people who by their own will, not by accident or lack of knowledge, chose to go their own way, chose to do their own things, and are in rebellion against God, just like Israel here. God forgives Israel not because their sins are insignificant. God forgives Israel not because they've promised to do better. God forgives Israel not because at least there were a few people who did it right. God forgives Israel because he is faithful to his character. Now listen, this should do two things. First, again, we need to let the reality of who God is and the story of what God has done in history shape our response to the injustice of our times. And I mentioned earlier that this is probably the most central and unique aspect of a Christian view of justice, the idea of forgiveness, the possibility of reconciliation. And you've seen it. You've seen it in your lifetime. You've read about it in books. This is the reality that so struck Corey Tenboom, who, after surviving the concentration camp of the Nazis in Ravensbrück and watching her sister die in that same camp, went on tour around Germany proclaiming the goodness of the gospel of God and what she'd discovered even in the depths of despair and when her own guard from Ravensbrück walked up to her after an event and stuck out his hand and said, Fraulein, how good it is to know we can be forgiven. She reached out and embraced him, physically hugged the man who had watched his sister, her sister die. Forgiveness. We saw this in 2007 when a milkman, a delivery man in an Amish community walked into an Amish school and shot 10 little girls, five of whom who died. And days after they buried their daughters, they showed up at the man, because he shot himself as well, they showed up at the man's funeral, embraced his widow and their children and gave them money because they were now fatherless forgiveness. We saw it in 2015 when a stranger was invited to join a Charleston church prayer meeting and came in and then pulled out a gun and shot the people in that prayer meeting for racist reasons. And at his bail hearing, attendee after attendee of that church who had lost their mothers and their sisters stood up and said, we forgive you. This is essential because in our day and age, the oppressor, the abuser, the offender, those who manipulate their powerful, they are damned by our culture forever. 
They are put away, unredeemable. They are no longer human. They are monsters. The gospel is good news, not just for the oppressed, but the oppressor. Now that requires repentance. And it requires forgiveness. But it is available. It is available in Jesus Christ. Do you see how that changes the way we engage in our fight for justice? Because we do it not just as we've talked about before, in a way that is willing to suffer as opposed to being, you know, the vehicle of justice, as opposed to crowd or mob rule that surrenders to God and realizes that suffering is a part of life. That's true. But more than that, we also do it with an open invitation to even those who identify and pursue fighting as our enemies and say, you too can know the living God. You too can know forgiveness. You too can experience reconciliation. Who is like you, O Lord? And so we have to live as a community and respond to injustice and the sins of others as individuals as well as in our broader community. We have to do it in a way that mystifies those who watch and makes them say, tell me more about this Jesus Christ. But where does that come from? And that leads us to the second thing we see in this passage, because obviously what I've just shared with you is an implication, right? It's not clearly stated in the text. Nowhere here does Micah exhort and say, therefore, Israel, you need to be a forgiving people. Do you see it anywhere? Is there any reference to how they should view the Babylonians? Maybe when we see here all of the world fleeing to Jerusalem for refuge, maybe that's seen there, but it's not very clear. What is clear is Micah's own personal marvel at a God like this. And where does that come from? It comes from the fact that the first thing in view of Micah encountering the forgiveness of God is his own sins and the failure of his own people. The order here is important. It's not, if you can find a way to forgive your enemies, God will forgive you. It's if you understand how significantly unique and powerful God's forgiveness is in your life, you can forgive. Now, I will tell you right offhand that not only does that sound trite and like a truism that doesn't really hold up in real life, but it's also really dangerous if you just strip it of all other components. The God that's presented here will do rightly and will do justice and will be patient but not indifferent to evil. The God who does right here extends this invitation but also requires repentance and the turning from these behaviors. Okay? And that's important. What we offer here and what we are offered is a setting of Right, or setting right of things, not an avoiding or ignoring of things. Okay, and so that's an important component here. But the marvel here is the reality of forgiveness. And when you understand that, suddenly you see the relationship between these two words, forgiveness and faithfulness. 
Okay, and, and here's, here's what I mean. It moves in two directions at the same time. First, God's faithfulness is demonstrated in his forgiveness. Who is more faithful? The man who keeps up his end of the bargain when the other side also does so? Or the man who keeps up his end of the bargain despite the fact that the others were unfaithful? That is God. That is his character. Israel did not deserve for God to fulfill his promises. But it wasn't their character that produced those promises to begin with. And those promises never took their validity from their behavior, but from who God is. And so if God wasn't faithful, there would be no Savior. If God wasn't faithful, Jesus wouldn't have come. If God wasn't faithful, Jesus wouldn't have endured the suffering and penalty of our sins and announced the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Forgiveness grows out of God's faithfulness. But if viewed from a different angle, forgiveness also makes God's faithfulness possible. Because how can God fulfill the promises to make us a righteous people if he doesn't deal with our unrighteousness? How can God get to the end of the story where the people of God live and dwell with him in righteousness forever until he deals with the elephant in the room, the problem at hand? How can he turn an enemy into a friend and an adversary into a family member? Forgiveness. And I want to remind you this morning, church, that if you identify as the child of God, you came through the door of forgiveness. No other door. No other way to God's presence except the way that he made by his own blood and in his own power and by his own love. Now listen, for most of us, this hit us really hard at some point in our life. We had the epiphany. I grew up in the church. I grew up memorizing sections of scripture for Awana. I grew up being able to explain that Christ died for sinners. But there was a moment where I went, I'm a sinner who needs Christ's death. And it was an epiphany for me. And before it was a weight lifted, it was a weight felt. It was a crushing epiphany. Luckily, I knew the truth full enough that it was also a surrender and a rejoicing in these types of things. But I want to remind you that as we go on, we still find sin to be a part of our lives. We still find selfishness in our heart that needs to be dealt with. We still find the need to confess our sins because sins still happen. And so we go again in confession and repentance to the same God who already paid for those sins and we find forgiveness. That's what 1 John tells us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now pause a moment. If you were writing instead of John the Apostle, if I was writing, I would suggest to you that this is how we'd finish that sentence. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and merciful to forgive us. And it's true, we need God's mercy. We've been talking about it for the last 40 minutes. But why does it say in John, he is faithful and just to forgive us? How is it that God's forgiveness is an act of his justice and not one against his justice? It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because well, let's put it in his own words. 
What does he pray in the garden before the cross? He says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He sees what's about to happen on the cross as a cup. And if you want to understand what he's talking about, you have to, again, read Isaiah. That cup is identified in Isaiah as the cup of God's wrath. It is, it is his just and righteous opposition and anger about evil. And so Jesus knows to drink that cup is serious business. To experience separation from God who he's known for all eternity because he is God is a big deal. And he finds no other way. And he surrenders to God's will and he drinks the cup. And he drinks it dry. There is not a drop of judgment left for you if you have fled to Christ and find your refuge in him. There is no judgment left for you, Christians. There is, as Paul says in Romans, no condemnation for those who were in Christ of Jesus, or Christ Jesus. When you suffer in your life, you can be confident that that suffering is not punishment, although it might be discipline, because God is actively trying to make you a better person. It is not just God going, you know what, you deserve this, and throwing it on you. In fact, Paul in Romans says that we can rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces. It's doing something in your life. God is using it for your good and not for evil. And why do I review all that? Because the words here of Micah are not just the words of the first-time altar call Christian who realizes and has that epiphany, I have sins that need to be forgiven. It is the daily walk that we should experience as Christ or as Christians. The power and reality that is laid out here should be where we live, not just a door we passed through a long time ago. If that is the case, it is no surprise that it wasn't Corey Tenboom who was saved yesterday who embraced her Nazi prison guard. Because she was still contemplating, aware of, celebrating, experiencing the forgiveness of God. And so she was able to extend it radically. Who is a God like you? I want to read the closing verses again in 18. And as I do so, I want you to recognize that when it mentions sin or transgression here or iniquities, it's talking about your sins. It's talking about your transgressions. It's talking about your iniquities. I want you to hear again, afresh, anew this morning what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And I want you to feel the weight of it as Micah does. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the day of old. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, when we try and explain our lives, the math doesn't make sense. When we look at the tensions and the difficulties of our world, like the psalmist, we almost stumble. If we were presented with the problem of humanity and asked to solve it, we would fail. Because we are not like you. And our politicians are not like you. And our greatest and most brilliant minds are not like you. And the most naturally noble and righteous among you is not like you. And the God that we envision and imagine for ourselves because we think if God's like this, it will be in our best interest is not like you. Who is like you, O Lord? God, I pray that you would continue this work of forgiveness in us so significantly and so completely that it would be transformative. To begin with, Lord, that it would transform us. That we would not just be a forgiven people, but because we would be so overwhelmed by your love, we would become a righteous people. I pray, Lord, that it, you would make it instinctual for us to identify swiftly and totally the evil in our lives, to forsake it, and to flee again to the cross of Christ. And as we do so, Lord, I, I pray that you would make us a people who pursue reconciliation. That's what you've called us to be, ambassadors of reconciliation, who come not just to call evil, evil, and to call for justice to be done, but also to extend a radical message of forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you would transform the way we see even our own enemies into potential family members, into those who need to know the goodness and faithfulness and forgiveness of God. And we pray as well that you would transform our world. We know that when things are set right, we know that when Jesus comes again, it will be built on the foundation of your faithfulness and your forgiveness. And so we pray this morning, look at all the wretched news, looking at all the difficulties of our time, looking at all the problems that need to be solved, all of the injustices, and we pray, come Lord Jesus. We just rejoice in who you are this morning. We worship the God who is unique in your steadfast love, in your faithfulness, and in your forgiveness. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus who died for us. Amen.